0: Amen. Thanks, David. Good morning. good morning. Man, it is so good to see you all here this morning. I am a little bit giddy and excited about opening the book of Revelation with you over the next couple of months. And so uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, feel free to go ahead and turn to Revelation 1. If you don't have a Bible and like to follow along, we put black uh, hardback Bibles under the seats around you. Uh, feel free to grab one of those and open to Revelation 1. We'll get started in just a minute. Uh, we are starting the Revelation series today, and we've got a lot of uh, groundwork to lay to get ready, so we're barely going to get into chapter 1 this morning, but we'll be in Revelation all the way up until uh, two Sundays before Christmas, so we've got a journey ahead of us, and, uh, and I want to just say um, from the beginning, uh, this book in the Bible comes with uh, a specific warning. Uh, matter of fact, the last few verses of Revelation give this warning, I warn everyone, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And I read that as a fairly significant warning uh, that we would make every attempt not to add to or take away from God's revelation. And I read that also as a warning for the whole of Bible and so um, when it comes to uh, interpreting scriptures not just revelation but the whole counsel of God's word there is um, there's a healthy practice that to be had and one of the things that can be helpful as part of that practice is the engagement of the imagination, speculation, asking questions. However, if we're not careful, especially with books like Revelation, we'll engage the imagination too much and we'll we'll follow our own thoughts and intuitions into making up our own stories. And so what we want to do is, we want to approach the Book of Revelation responsibly as Bible-believing uh, people who have have gathered together to hear what God has said through what God has written through the biblical authors, and uh, and so want to add to that if you are a believer who's wanting more tools to put into the toolbox on how to read the Bible how to study the Bible in a responsible way in a way that has a faithfulness to the way God wrote it we encourage you to uh, to sign up for our how to read the Bible class and uh, you can sign up for that online that starts next Sunday in the second service and uh, I believe it's a four-week class I'm looking at some of the people who know I think it's a four-week class um, giving you some basic tools, not just for Revelation, but uh, for all of the counsel of God's word on how to read the Bible in a way that you can pull out of it God's truth and apply to your daily life. And so might be a good time to go through that class as well as we're opening up Revelation together. So we're going to lay some groundwork to get started, and, uh, and this will get us, get us going in the right direction. So to begin with, typically two camps of, of people when it comes to the to conversations about the end times. You have the end time phobics who are so worried about or anxious about the end times that they refuse to think about it at all. And so this camp of folks uh, tend to operate in what's happening today, maybe with some idea of what's happened in the past. But when you start talking about the end times, we don't want to have those conversations. We'll talk about it. It's, it's too hard to figure out. I don't want to go there. And so that's the, the camp of the end time phobics. Then we have another camp of folks who I call the end time maniacs, and everything is about the end times, so much so that the end times consume these folks in a way that they, 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 they don't give any attention to daily routine today, the daily responsibilities of today. Everything is about the end times, and so therefore, there's a great neglect uh, when it comes to living for Christ today and this was this was true even in the New Testament um, those who were in Thessalonica uh, were in this mindset quitting their jobs selling out doomsday preppers it's it's coming let's get ready and Paul writes to them and addresses them you're right it is coming but you can't lose sight of what God is doing in your life today so you have the end time phobics and the end time maniacs so what we want to do is we want to develop a healthy perspective today that allows us to be engaged in what's happening on the ground in our lives today, how Christ is using us, working in us, moving the gospel forward in the relationships around us with a healthy and eager expectation of what is to come. And so as we get started this morning, I want to start with the question, why, talking, why, why is talking about the end times important at all? Okay. So if you're following along in your sermon notes, we're going to walk through a few things to get started. So why talking about the end times is important? Let's just start off with um, the Bible talks a lot about the end times, right? So it must be important to God. Jesus talks about the end times, so it must be important to Jesus. So therefore, as those who have proclaimed to give our lives to follow Jesus, it should be important to us, right? So if Jesus talks about it, it's in the Bible, it by default should be important to us. It's important to God. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of other reasons why It should be important. I think about a conversation that um, Jesus had after the resurrection with two of his followers. Uh, You may be familiar with the story where they're walking along the road and they don't realize they're walking with the resurrected Jesus in Luke 24. And so we find in Luke 24 this conversation where he says to them, because they didn't recognize him at first, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken so we'll stop there what is he saying he's talking to two men who knew the Old Testament really well they knew a whole lot about the Messiah who was to come and and not only that they had begun to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah and so they were very familiar with texts like Isaiah 53 that talk about how um, he will he will bear the stripes of the sins of his people that that he will be led like a lamb to the slaughter and so all these prophecies about the one to come they knew yet They were foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary, verse 26 of Luke 24, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, then Jesus stopped, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. And so I would say uh, that we would then say, well, we don't want to be like that, right? We don't want to be foolish and slow of heart to believe that when the, when the end times begin to unfold in a way that we can recognize them as believers, we don't want to be caught right in this category of being foolish or slow of heart to believe. There's another reason I think it's important for us to think about the end times and maybe even more important than what we've mentioned so far. And this I'm going to pull out of a prayer where Jesus is praying in John 17, 24. He's praying. He says, Father... I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Here's here's an important reason why the end times should be important to us. Because Jesus is waiting in eager expectation of spending eternity with us. Because Jesus is waiting. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am. So there's this eager expectation in the heart of Jesus, a longing. He's even praying. I desire to, for them to be with me where I am going. Because Jesus is waiting in the eager expectation of spending eternity with us. Romans 8, we're going to look at one more primary reason why this is an important conversation for us to have, not just in this sermon series, but in our everyday lives. Romans eight, verse starting in verse 18. The apostle Paul is writing about suffering and he's writing about longing for Jesus to come back and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, For the creation waits. So creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation is waiting with this eager longing for the end to come, verse 24, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that he, excuse me, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation. Has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so Jesus is waiting in eager expectation for the end times to unfold. Creation is waiting and groaning and longing. And the sons of God are eagerly waiting and groaning for our own adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Because all of creation is groaning amidst the pains of this fallen world, longing for Jesus to come back and make all things new. Amen? I mean, you know somebody right now in different words who's praying that prayer. Bring this suffering to an end. I don't know that I could bear one more day. Lord Jesus, please come soon. And whether that you're looking at the globe as a whole and the, the, the growing issue of, of terrorism and persecution of Christians around the globe, and that's causing you to say, Jesus, come on, let's end this thing. Or you've got something personal going on in your life, a personal affliction or some type of illness or diagnosis, and you're saying, I'm ready for this to be done there is a longing and an eager expectation for Jesus to come back and make all things new. Revelation twenty two twenty. 20, this is how Revelation ends. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then John, the apostle John who's writing this says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. How I hope that that's our prayer as we move through this series, that it would would begin to stir up in us an eager expectation and longing to see Jesus face to face, that that would be our prayer. Amen. Lord Jesus, come soon. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk through a couple foundational things to help us uh, get some bearings before we go into the series. Lots of different perspectives and mindsets and ways that in- Revelation gets interpreted. We're going to look at some major camps of thought and how these major camps of thought approach Revelation. Some of you already know where you land. You come into this thinking, I'm pre-trib, post-trib, da da and you have all the labels down. For most of us, though, we don't even know what those words mean, and we're trying to get our bearings. We're trying to figure some things out. So let me just give you some bearings here. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that temporal time, the time that's ticking away right now, is linear. Has a beginning, has an end. Now, that's important because we tend to think in secular time. We tend to, we tend to think of the calendar. It revolves, right? It's September. So when we think about next September, we see the calendar just going around like a clock, don't we? And it's very secular until one day we wake up and go, whoa, where did all the time go? How did, I, how did I wake up one day and all of a sudden I'm 39? Where did all the time go? Because we've been counting it in 12-month 12 12 month increments, right? We've been thinking in small terms when time itself is moving. There'll never be another today. There'll be another September the 6th But it'll be 2016 if Jesus doesn't come back, right? I mean, 2015, this moment in time is marked. You'll never get this moment back again. It's linear. It's moving forward constantly. So there's some things to think about, a way to think about the Bible before we get into Revelation, seeing how Revelation fits into the whole picture of the Bible. I'm going to show you some slides kind of help us visualize this. So... So if you think about your Bible, I don't know if you can read this from where you're at, but the two black arrows, one on the left represents the Old Testament, the one on the right, the New Testament, then the books that drop underneath. This is just a a way to organize the books in your Bible. Okay. And so if you think about it, though, like this, in terms of time, linear time, on the far left-hand side you have Genesis, which begins with what? In the beginning. So it's the beginning of the story. The story begins to unfold, going to the right, longing for the return of Christ, bringing All things new and doing what? Recreating. So on one end of the time spectrum, we have creation. And on the other end, we have recreation, the making of all things new. And so if you read the Bible that way, you begin to see one big story. And so one way to think about... You can go to the next slide, Rick. So that you begin to see this story unfolding. And we will, as we go along through Revelation, unpack this more and more, how this uh, the story is unfolding. But then if you look at the Bible in another way, you can see three, or you can see these major events that mark the story, which we're going to look at in just a minute. So on one hand, you have the fall, and Rick, you can just, just keep rolling if you want. Um, you have the fall of creation reflected at the beginning uh, with the tree. This is the fall. This is where Adam and Eve sinned. This is where the shadow of sin and death was cast over creation. It's where a lot of our longing comes from. We're ready for that shadow to be lifted. right? We're ready for, for death to die. And so that shadow has been cast. There's another significant moment in the middle, which is the cross. And then, of course, which is the first coming of Christ. And at the end, the crown representing the return of Christ as the ruling king. Then you can also look at the Old Testament as the story of Israel. The Gospels as the story of Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament, the story of the church. But there are two themes I want you to see here. The Old Testament is man's relationship with God, which is broken by sin. But then the New Testament is man's relationship with God is restored by faith. So just some big ways to think about the Bible. One big story unfolding. You've got the story of Israel in the Old Testament. That begins to fade out and give way to the story of the church in the New Testament. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are specifically the story of Jesus coming to earth. But if you look at the themes, the Old Testament, every story, you're going to see this reoccurring theme. Broken relationship with God because of sin. Then what happens in the New Testament? That begins to give way to the story of, or the theme of restored relationship with God by faith. And so what we're building up to, the climax we're looking forward to, is Revelation, the end, when all things are restored all things are made new. All that was broken all the way back at the fall gets undone or remade or renewed or restored or redeemed in the end. That's our longing. So I think for many of us, when we think about the end times, our perspective is fairly narrow. We're looking for an end just to our suffering, right? which is part of it. We're looking to see those who we've lost and Right? We're looking for the things we're interested in, and, and that's okay, but we need to know there's a bigger story unfolding, a meta-narrative unfolding. All things are going to be made new. When your pain and suffering is brought to an end, all pain and suffering is going to be brought to an end. So let's look at the big events on the timeline. So I want to use this. If you were with us for Christ in Culture last spring, we used the, uh, the timeline here. And so this is familiar. If, you're, if you weren't there, it's okay. I'll kind of walk you through it. So we're just going to look at the big events of, of history. Okay, So beginning with creation. Creation of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. Chapter 3. What happens shortly after that? God says to Adam, see everything here? It's all yours. Take care of it. Steward it well. But don't eat from this one tree. The moment you do, you surely Will die, so the fall, and then we have the coming of Christ, this Messiah. So everything in the Old Testament, from here to here, is pointing forward to this moment. A rescuer is coming, one like David, whose throne will who, who will sit on his throne forever and ever is coming. Look forward, there's a rescuer coming, and so Jesus comes to Earth to be our Now, this part of human history is, is fairly easy to comprehend. It's when we start going this way, right, that things begin to get a little bit confusing. And we read the Bible, we read these prophecies, and we try to figure out what's going on. So let's hit a few big events. So we read Revelation, especially when we get to around chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22, we begin to realize all things are going to be made new. There's going to be a recreation. There's a tree in the garden, and there's a tree in the end. There's a, there's a heaven and earth in the beginning. There's a recreation of heaven and earth right here. But these three items right here are the ones that get us the most confused. And so um, let me just say there is predicted and described a time of suffering and tribulation, great persecution against the church. And so there's what we call referred to as the tribulation. There's also ref, there is also a time called or referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. Now, where you put Jesus coming back determines where you sit in terms of theology. So, if you put Jesus Coming back before the tribulation, you're a pre trib person. That's what that label means. You just believe Jesus is coming back. Before that last catastrophic major tribulation happens, Jesus will come back. Uh, This is uh, sometimes the tribulation is depicted in like the uh, Left Behind series. I don't point to those as good theological works, but you get the idea. There's a time of persecution coming. And so if you believe Jesus is coming back after the tribulation, you're a post trib person. Okay? Either the the church is going to go through this or not. Maybe he comes back and takes all the Christians out of the world and just leaves everybody else to go through this. Or he allows the church to go through this and comes back afterwards post-trip. Then we have the millennial reign. This one's probably more debated by biblical scholars. We'll get to this later in Revelation as well. And so some believe that the second coming of Christ will happen before the millennial reign. Jesus will come back. To earth and rule and reign for a thousand years, either literal or symbolic, here on earth before the final resurrection from the dead and before all things are made new. And so that would be a, a, pre, or a, a yeah, pre-millennial. Some believe, however, that the millennial reign has already begun. That at the resurrection of Jesus, the millennial reign actually began in the hearts of believers and so there's more of a dispensational view here, this idea that the thousand years has already started and it's somewhat figurative. It represents the church age. And so Jesus comes back at the end of that, which would then put that, make, cause that person to, then to be, fall into the label of post-millennial. Okay. Hopefully that was helpful for you in some way. These are the major events that we're going to be looking at, and the ones that are most debated or discussed fall right in here. What happens here? Now, we won't get there until later on, the second half of Revelation, but this is where we're headed. Now, the, there's the point, though, of why I do all this. The point of it all is right here. Like, this is what we're supposed to be praying for, longing for, asking for Lord Jesus, come soon. Nobody's, nobody's longing for this, right? Right? Nobody's saying, tribulation, please come soon. I want some of that. Whether we have to walk through it or we don't, this is not what we're looking for. We're looking forward to this. This is not even what we're looking for. Because this, even though Jesus is depicted as a, as a, as a reigning king here on earth in the, in the millennial reign, like it's not the finality that we're looking for. We're looking for eternity to begin. We're looking for the temporal time to stop this linear temporal time and to step into the eternal presence of our God and King. And so the point of it all, just like the Old Testament was pointing here, everything we're reading in the New Testament, the point of it all is right here. The return of our king. Now, we'll go ahead and and get a couple other things laid out. So, there are four different primary ways you can view Revelation. Camps of thought. One of them is past or past tense. Um, These are the preterists. This is the idea that everything you read about in Revelation was taking place in that period of time, first century, when the Apostle John was writing it down. He was writing about events that were unfolding right then or about to unfold. And so most of Revelation has already happened. Okay, so this is a past tense view of Revelation. There's there's a large group of folks who view the Bible that way. Then there's another uh, group of folks. This is the these are the, the historic folks who view the Bible historically. This is more of a dispensational view and so what they're viewing is that since John began writing about things happening in his day and time that the events of revelation have already started unfolding. And so we're somewhere in the story of revelation but further down the line quite possibly. And so these are this is the historic view then you have a symbolic view or a symbolic approach to revelation everything is symbolism. Nothing is to be taken literal. Nothing is to be compared to a timetable or a calendar. Everything is symbolic, right? Everything is symbolism. And then you have a final view. Everything's in the future. So after Revelation 3, the churches from there forward, starting in chapter 4 of Revelation forward, all of that is in the future, and it's still yet to start happening or unfold. You you may know right now where you fall in terms of what I just mentioned. Well, I've always thought of it this way, right? And I think the vast majority of us tend to think most of it's in the future. Most of it is still yet to happen. But there are these four different views. Now, here's how that's going to impact the way we go through the series. We're going to go through verse by verse, Revelation, and we're going to unpack it according to these views so that you can see how these different views play out in terms of the prophecies of Revelation. All right. Past, historic, symbolic, futuristic. Now, Revelation 1. You ready to get started? Okay. I gave you those notes so that along the way, you can come back and refer to them, right? Uh, when you're in life group discussing things, you've got some labels, or you get a question, you want to email me and ask a specific question. You've got some bearings there. Now, you can, you can interact with us as we go through this series. So I want to begin with just a little bit of short background so you kind of know um, a little bit more about what's going on. So the Apostle John is writing Revelation not very many people dispute that. A few do, but not very many would dispute that. John, the, the disciple in whom Jesus loved, the one who wrote the Gospel of John and then the letters of John, is also the John writing this. Now John, as we know it historically, is the only apostle who didn't die as a martyr for Jesus. The others did. And, and so what, one of the, uh, one of the um, historic accounts of what happened to John is this. He was... It was living under Roman authority rule in a time where uh, the, the Roman emperor had issued decree to basically stamp out Christianity. And so that happened in two really significant places in the first century. Uh, the, the reign of, of Nero just after the mid part of the first century or the end of the first century under the reign of uh, Domitian. Both Roman emperors, both were really hard on Christians, both issued decrees and laws that would, were there, that, whose attempt were to stamp out Christianity by way of persecution and suffering. So Nero was, was a significant um, persecutor of the church. Some believe that Revelation was actually written under his reign. Well, how, why does that matter? Because as we begin to unfold the events and we begin to think about what's happening in John's day and time, we, we need to ask that question: Was he writing this under the suffering and oppression of Nero, or was it later on, which most biblical scholars think it was later on in the first century, uh, somewhere around the 80s or 90s AD, under the reign of Domitian, when John wrote this? Here's a little something that we know about John: is that uh, from from church history, is that uh, they attempted to kill John and to martyr him and the method that is uh, that is somewhat believed to be true is that they tried to boil him in hot oil and then when he didn't die they then exiled him to the island of Patmos and this is where he wrote Revelation so he either wrote it during the reign of Nero or the reign of Domitian and most biblical scholars based on how of the events or on the events that are happening surrounding the text written believe that it was later on in the first century. So why does that, why does that matter? Because we're going to read about persecution. We're going to read about martyrdom. We're going to read about tribulation. And so, so we can begin to see how a lot of folks can see how potentially the events being written about have already happened, or at least some of them. right? And so so here's something I want to I offer up as maybe a, a note, and then we'll get started in uh, Revelation 1, verse 1. Here's kind of my approach. Okay, So I tend to say, okay, how does God generally lay out prophecy and fulfill them? What's, what's, what's normal to the way that God gives and then fulfills prophecies? That takes me back to the Old Testament, which interestingly enough, that Revelation is full of Old Testament imagery and references. And we're going to get to some from, uh, from Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Even this morning, we're going to look a little bit at Isaiah. Well, here's what I can see. When you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, and you try to imagine how they're writing things before they actually happen, many of them draw on current events that are happening right then or about to happen, they write in such a way that the people of their time probably had to ask the question, is he talking about right now or is he talking about the future? Many of the prophets would write about exile before it would happen in a time of suffering, in a time of restoration. And so as the people of Israel were walking through these events, they had to ask the question, the same questions that we're asking. Is, 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 he, is he talking about right now or is he talking about the future? So we look at how God uh, communicates in the Old Testament, prophecies and fulfills them. It's very consistent that God would utilize current events, current suffering, current things happening or about to happen to point to something even bigger, to foreshadow something even bigger to come in the future. So for me, I have no trouble reading Revelation and hearing John's description of tribulation and suffering in a way that I can say, you know what, I, I can see that this, he was, he was sitting in the midst of it. had been exiled, attempted martyrdom. Many of his fellow believers, as we'll see this morning, were suffering. I can see that, but I can also see where that suffering was pointing to something even bigger. And so there's just one little side note for you as you begin to think about how God is speaking through revelation to you specifically. So let's get started in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the title of this sermon. The point of it all, keep in mind, is what? This is what we're pointed to. The point of revelation is what? This is Jesus' revelation. Not John's, Jesus. Jesus comes to John and reveals. John writes it down. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written for the time is near. So let's deal for just a minute with the two different approaches in reference to time. The time is near. Is Jesus saying to John, it's about to happen. Everything I'm going to show to you is about to go down. It's either happening right now or it's about to go down within the next few years. Or is Jesus pointing to something further down the road, something to come, something in the future? So the two phrases here that I want to pull out are these, are these two. The things that must soon take place, and then end of verse 3 says, for the time is near. So if we just read those words literally, I mean, it sounds very pressing, doesn't it? I get that letter in the mail. I'm, right, the first thing I'm going to think is, this is about to go down. If these things are true, I better pack my bags. I better get prepared, get the family ready. We need to, we need to get bunkered down and ready for this to un- unfold. It's interesting in uh, 2 Peter, I want to read some verses from 2 Peter. Peter is also writing during a time of persecution, and he addresses the coming of the Lord in a way that, I think that, that helps us understand what's going on here. In 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1, Peter says this. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved. And in both of them, I am writing, or I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Remember, we don't want to be fools or slow at heart to believe. And Peter's saying, I don't want you to be that way either. I'm trying to stir up your mind. Reminds you of the prophecies. But look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of what? His coming. Even the scoffers are asking that question. Where, Where is it? Where's he at? Where is his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, which is oftentimes referenced to the men of the Old Testament, Moses, Abraham, David, who've fallen asleep. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So that'll be the theme of the scoffers. Where's he at? I don't see him. And if I look back over history, it looks like things are just continuing to rock along and unfold in the same old, same old way. Verse 5. For they, the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by this same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, I feel like what Peter is saying indirectly is that those who mock the Lord should be the least anxious about his return. So this is what he's saying to the scoffers. Let's just talk about time for a minute. Did you forget that heaven, like if we look back to the creation, like that's a long time ago. Remember the flood? I mean, that's way back here, way back there. And let's also not forget that right now, the heavens and the earth are storing up a sense of wrath and judgment that in the end, somewhere down here, God is going to unleash. Part of the renewing of all things is the, is, the, is the destruction of death, bringing some things to an end by judgment. And so I hear in Peter's words just a warning to the scoffers. Hey, you should be the least excited about that. Why are you out there pressing that button? Where's he at? Like, be careful, because I don't know that you really want that if that's where you stand. But then look at what he says, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You've heard that before, right? In context, we know what it's talking about. It's talking about those who are beginning to spread doubt that Jesus is ever coming back. Peter responds, are you kidding me? If you look at just the time that we can measure that we're aware of, A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. What is he saying? He's saying God's perspective is not your perspective. When God says soon, he means it on his terms, not ours. When he says it's near, he means near from his perspective, maybe not necessarily ours. Look at what he says next, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. The scoffer's problem is what? God's just too slow. Maybe he forgot, maybe he changed his mind, or maybe he was bluffing all to begin with. but he's, he's slow. And Peter says, "Hey, we don't count God we don't count God's slowness that way, instead, but it is, patient towards, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when we see a slowness in the second coming of Christ, we're to interpret that as patience. We're not to interpret that as us being patient with God, but God being patient with us. There's a a story unfolding, and God is being patient as it unfolds. Why? That he doesn't want any to perish. And so when we think slowness, we need to interpret that as patience. He's being patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, we'll get to that later on in the series. But Peter's point is this. Don't just read the word soon and, 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 and try to define God's plan for creation through your small, finite understanding. Because a thousand years is like a day for the Lord, and a day like a thousand years. And so when we read the words here from Jesus in Revelation 1, these things must soon take place, for the time is near. Who's speaking here? Right? This is, these are the words of Jesus coming to us. From God's perspective, there should be a sense of eager expectation. The time is drawing near. So I have no problem being 2,000 or 1,900 years removed from the time that this was written and still believing the time is near. It is soon. Linear time is ticking away. And the further we go into human history, the closer we're getting to this. And The closer we get to this, the more my heart stirs and says, oh, Lord Jesus, come soon. Now, What happens when we read Revelation, we get tripped up over those words, and we miss some beautiful things. Do you see the beautiful promise that was made to us in those same verses? Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written. There is blessing for those who read aloud the words of this prophecy who not only read them but they hear them and they keep them why are all three of those components necessary why is it not enough just to read it out loud I think um, there's a there's kind of a um, superstitious notion in Christianity that somehow this is more like a, a book of magic spells and you just read it yet you don't have to think about it or study it or believe it and and you could just put one of these out on a table in the house and all of a sudden good things are supposed to happen in your house. And, right? And so, like, it's not enough for me to stand up here and just read it. Like, if we don't hear it, hear it with understanding is, is the word here. If we don't hear these words and what? Keep them. Guard them. Protect them. Like, all of that has to be present. There is blessing to be had. There's blessing for those. There's joy to be had. Now, think about it. Okay? In context. If John was writing about a tribulation that was taking place in his time, suffering in his time, what is he saying to his people? He's saying, here's the thing. If you will read these words out loud, so he's circulating this this book, Revelation, to the churches. Read it out loud. There'll be blessing. We're going to be talking about in live groups how that would be a blessing. To hear the words of Revelation in the midst of present-day suffering and persecution, how would that be a blessing? We're going to be talking about how when you hear it and believe it, how it would have been a blessing to the people who received John's writing originally. But here's the bigger question. How is that a blessing to you today in the midst of what you're going through? How do the words of Revelation read aloud when you hear them, believe them, hang on to them? Author of Hebrews says, hold fast to them. How is that a blessing for you in your current situation, what you're going through? The promise is this, There is... Blessing for those who read, hear, and guard the Word of God. Read, hear, and guard. It's one of the reasons why How to Read the Bible is a really important class. We learn how to read, and not just read it, but hear it. Read, hear, and guard, or read, hear, and protect or keep the Word of God. Now we're going to go to verse 4, and we're going to sample a little bit of the imagery that comes up and the difficulties with interpreting some of the imagery we get in Revelation. And so let's go ahead and go to verse 4. Now, what we're going to get primarily in 4 through 8 is who the letter is written to and who it's from. Okay, that's primarily what's being communicated here. Now, there's some imagery here. So verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So who is the letter written to? The seven churches in Asia. Well, what we're going to do over the next seven weeks, we're going to walk through... Revelation 2 and 3, these individual letters or writings to each of these churches. Now, here's the question. Are the words that John was writing only for those seven churches of Asia Minor? Or, that's one perspective, right? That's a past tense perspective. Or, some people will look at these seven churches symbolizing the different eras of church history. So the first church represented first century, so on and so forth. We'll look at that perspective too. What was what was going on in church history that could be connected? Some will read it though as though it's 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 all transcendent to the future that we should read these letters as written to us. Here's what we're gonna we're gonna do: all three. And we say, God, how can you speak to us today through any one of these perspectives? And so, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, we've I have no doubt that he that Jesus' intention was John for John to circulate the letters to those seven churches. Key spots, strategic places to hear this word of God. Grace to you and peace from him who was excuse me, who is and was and is to come. So who it's to, who it's from. He's gonna spend a lot of time here talking about who it's from now and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So here enters um, one of the first opportunities for us to talk about imagery, seven spirits. And so there are two uh, primary ways to look at that particular reference. I'll just give them to you. This is just going to be some, if you will, some warm-up for where we're going in the series. So two primary views here. One is that. These seven spirits described here before the throne are representative of actual seven angelic beings before the throne. When you get to Revelation 4, there's an imagery of the throne room, and there are angelic beings that are, that are surrounding the throne in worship. Now, the difference is there's four angelic beings, and they each have a specific thing that they're reflecting and a reason why they're there. Here we've got seven So the second and the more probable interpretation of this is that since seven reflects the perfection of God, his holiness, that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit working in seven churches. See? See how that works? You've got two different ways to look at it. Not necessarily saying you have to land on one of those to be right, but we have to ask the bigger question, what's the point here? So we go forward. So this is not only from the one who is and was and is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness. So it sounds kind of trinitarian to me. Sounds a lot like God the Father and the Spirit. Verse this is the rest of verse 5. So describing Jesus, the one who is authoring this, the firstborn among the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has Freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then in quotes in your Bible, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Now, when we get into interpreting what's going on in Revelation, we're going to ask the question a lot what was going on in John's world? But we need to read Revelation not ultimately as John's writing, but as the writing of God Himself. He's the actual author of this writing. So we just had a specific reference to Jesus and the things that he's accomplished on our behalf. Potentially the Holy Spirit, this beautiful Godhead is saying to us, I'm the one giving this revelation to you, not John. The one who is and was and who is to come. Now I love this passage and we're going we're gonna to land here uh, for today looking at some of these important attributes of the one who's referred to here as the one who is and was and is to come. First of all, Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. This is in verse five, the firstborn among the dead. Why is that important? How does that play into the Revelation series? It's incredibly important, incredibly important. So at the first coming, something happens right here that is incredibly important to each of our lives. Jesus resurrects from the dead. And he resurrects with a real body. Real. Like he's found after the resurrection eating, rummaging through the kitchen, having the disciples build a campfire and cook some fish. I mean, a real, not a ghostly figure, a real resurrected body. Why is it important that we refer to him as the firstborn? Because I'm counting on that too. Because if you're in Christ, you're counting on that too. It's one of the, that's, that's the climax of his return, one of them. I mean, right at the apex of his return and all things being made new, we get new bodies. Resurrected, healed, free from sickness, free from pain, free from suffering, free from loneliness, free from depression, free from tears. Real resurrected bodies, not ghostly figures. We're not just going to be floating around, ooh, translucent images, Real, resurrected bodies. Jesus is not just the resurrected Savior. He's the firstborn. You and I are the ones who are going to follow after him. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. That's why we have hope, right? He did it. He conquered it. Not only that, Jesus comes as the ruler of the kings on earth not to get into global politics at all but won't that won't that be an exciting time (laughs) right I mean my head spins from what deals are happening between which countries and how things are playing out and I can't keep up with I don't even have an opinion because I don't even know what's happening anymore but I can look forward to a day when Jesus steps on the earth and he says done done king done president done Ruler of Syria, ruler of the United States, ruler of Mexico, ruler of Cuba, done. I'm now the king here on earth. Man, I'm looking forward to that day. He comes as a firstborn among the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. And then this is where it just really gets exciting. He's the one who loves us. So not only am I looking forward to Jesus stepping onto the earth with final authority, I'm excited about it because he does so loving us. That means his intentions as a ruler will be for our good. Finally. I don't have to sift through the politics and and second guess my, my position or my voting or my allegiance. I can like say wholeheartedly, I can follow him. I can submit to his leadership. I can trust, right? I can trust his direction. Why? Because he loves me. I don't have to second guess his motives. Not only that, Jesus is the one who has freed us fr- from our sins by his blood. And this, this imagery is going to come out a lot. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. He still gets referred to as the lamb who was slain. As we see this victorious ruler, and I love the way he's described as a victorious warrior. We're gonna, you're going to have a hard time, um, yeah, uh, sitting through that part when I'm reading. I'm just telling you, I mean, like, we may play Braveheart theme music and just, like, it's going to be awesome, okay? But he's still the lamb who was slain for our sins. He is a ruler who first laid down his life. He first laid down his sword, his glory, his life in humility and suffering. And when he comes back to take it back up again, right, we'll say, man, he loves us. I can follow him. He, he died for me. And it will be no trouble pledging allegiance to to him. I mean, what president or leader in our lives has ever laid down their lives for us? And I love the end of this here. He's also not bound by time. He is, he was, and he is to come. Not bound by time. Second Samuel 7, referring first of all to the first coming. This is in the Old Testament. Says that he would come, one would come after David, from David's lineage, who would sit on the throne forever, whose reign would not come to an end like the the reign of the kings here on earth, one who is not bound by time. And then, therefore, leading into this, one who is the author of the story. He's the author of the story. We're going to see remarkable comparisons from Revelation to Genesis, especially the closer we get to the end. And you're going to see this story was written by one primary author. It's the only way you can explain it. Yeah, you got Moses way back here, writing these things down. you got John way over here, writing these things down. you got all these authors here in the middle, all these little stories going on, stories happening with, in Israel, and stories happening in Jericho, and, and happened, Jonah, and Gentile gentiles and jesus and walking all these little stories but what you're going to see is there's one author the one who's coming to us to give us this revelation is one not bound by time he is the author of the story of life and i want you to think about that every time you read the words i am the alpha and the omega i initiated the beginning and i initiated the end now we're going to land here for today And uh, and we're going to come back next week and begin working through the churches. And we're going to take three different approaches primarily to the churches. As we get to the church in Ephesus, we're going to say, well, what was going on in John's time right?" that explains what was written to these churches? Jesus is writing his heart out to these churches. We're going to look at the application for them. We're going to look at church history. This idea that maybe these seven churches reflect different eras within church history. We're going to look at what was going on in church history that possibly could be connected but most importantly, we're going to look at what's going on today. And we're going to see how what Jesus spoke through John to the church in Ephesus back in 90 AD, how does that apply to solid rock today? How does that apply to my life and your life tomorrow? So we're going to walk through the seven churches that way over the next seven weeks. And then we'll move into chapter 4. And this, this is going to do nothing but get a more exciting week after week. All right. I want to stop here, and I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite our, um, at least Jason to come forward. We're going to take communion in a few minutes, but not, not right now. And so, Jason, if you want to, you want to go ahead and come on up. Um, here's what I'd like to do. First of all, um, for us who are in the room who are Christians, I'm already hearing the excitement about the series, and I'm glad you're excited. Challenge. Maybe word of caution a challenge. Can we just make sure that this is primarily what we're excited about? Can this be the driving force that causes us to want to read Revelation, to unlock the mysteries, to figure out what's going on in millennial reign and in the tribulation and and all of it? Can we we make that commitment together? That like Paul said, right now I see dimly, one day I shall see fully when I see him face to face. Can we make that the greatest point for why we're going through this series? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and, and so this may have you intrigued about a lot of things going on in the world and human history and all those sorts of things as a church, we don't want to just ask questions. We want to be here for you. Different ways we do that. We, um, we have, I mean, even today, we've got elders and we've got um, our prayer partners will be in the back. Anytime during the end of the service you want to talk with somebody, you can always um, email thoughts or questions or concerns or needs into us. Okay? Okay. Um, Beyond that, we've got life group ministries. We've got Sunday morning classes. We've got things going on. We want to walk with you through this series. I want to say this most importantly to you today. If you, if you go back to where I started this morning, and we talked about the Old Testament being primarily a story of the relationship of God being broken by sin, but yet the Old Testament gives way to the New Testament, and the theme shifts to God restoring his relationship with us by faith. I just want to say to you, that, that offer is on the table right now. Regardless of where you fit with all these big things, this has already happened for you. It's already happened. By faith, today, you can have a relationship with the God of the universe, the one who's writing all this. All the work that Jesus did on the cross for you, that's a free gift he's offering to you that you would simply believe. So I'm going I'm to pray for you today that you would make that decision. And if you want to talk with somebody again our prayer partners are going to be around in the back if you make a decision to follow Jesus today um, I'm going to encourage you to to let somebody know somebody who you came with or one of us here at the church let us know so we can pray for you let me pray for us now let's just take a few moments to get our hearts ready and we'll take communion in a few minutes Um, father thank you for the free gift of love and mercy we have in Jesus Right now, I wanna pray for any person here who doesn't know how much you love them, who doesn't know how good your intentions are for them, that today would be the day, right now in this moment, a moment that we'll never have back again. I pray, God, that that person would take a step of faith. That's you right now. I don't wanna put words in your mouth but here's here's what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to pray right now in your own heart and your own mind. Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you're the Son of God, the author of life. I believe that you're writing the story of human history and I believe that you're writing my story. So today I want to come to you and ask for forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. If that's you right now and you've prayed that prayer and you believe it in your heart that's what it means to be a Christian and I'm going to encourage you to share that with somebody all right let's take a few minutes to get our hearts ready for communion maybe if you want to move to the front or stay where you're at and pray or some of you want to go grab a prayer partner feel free to do that I'll take just a few minutes to get ready